1735, a young man called John Wesley got on a ship from England to the Americas. And uh, his mission at the time was to go and convert the, uh, the indigenous people of North America to Christianity. That's what he wanted to do. And that... So you're making a sign at me, Joe. What are you saying? You want me to move over here? Okay. Thanks, Joe. Hi. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's how it works in our household. It's just little signs, you know. We don't really talk, but... Yeah, actually, I'm quite used to that sign. Um, so, back to John Wesley. Uh, the thing is, this journey on the ship was to pr prove absolutely pivotal in his life. Uh, and it was a journey that where he was going to find out that actually he needed more help than the people he was going to. And uh, he got on the ship to Savannah, Georgia, and um, there were some Germans, some Moravians on board, 27 of them as well, and they were to prove pivotal in the change that came about in his life. And uh, I've, I've been reading Wesley's journals, which are ancient and um, amazing and sometimes hilarious as well because he gets into so many scrapes. And on this journey it says this, that in the, uh, this is January um, the 23rd, in the evening another storm began, in the morning it increased so that they were forced to let the ship drive. I could not but say to myself, how is it that thou hast no faith, being still unwilling to die? And then he looks over at the Germans and uh, they are having a worship time. And it says, and he says about them, in the midst of the psalm wherewith their service began, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming arose from the English. The Germans calmly sang on. I asked one of them afterwards, was you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I won't try the accent. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? And he replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. And this particular encounter, and they did make it over to America, and Wesley had a spectacularly unsuccessful mission trip to the Americas. Uh, it took him three years of contemplating this, time, uh, this particular journey to think about what was going on for him and what was going on for them. And then looking back three years later in his journal, he says this. He says, it's quite ironic. He says, I went to America to convert the Indians, as he calls them. But, oh, who shall convert me? Who shall convert me? And then a few months later, he goes to a particular uh, a worship time. And famously, he says in the journal later, my, at that point, my heart was strangely warmed. He experienced the presence of God. And I felt I did trust Christ. That was absolutely essential. And everything changed for him at that point. And as we get to know Jesus, he always takes us on a journey from fear to faith. Fear is the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is not doubt. It's fear. And as Jordan's saying, the writer and pastor says, fear is the beginning of everything bad. And so we should be alert to fear in our lives. I don't mean by fear occasional worries or uh, the, the very useful bit of fear where you jump out of the way of a car coming towards you or that sort of thing. But I mean persistent nagging fear, the kind of knot in your stomach that rarely goes away. Fear is the original sin. 
If you read in Genesis chapter 1, you can read about Adam and Eve. And, uh, and their temptation right at the beginning is not to trust God, but to be afraid that, he is, that the things that he said to them are not really good or not really right. And the snake speaks to them and says, did God really say this or did he say that? And the original sin is, can God, who we can't see, be trusted, or shall we take matters into our own hands? That's essentially what it is. And you can see all the way through scripture, all the way through history, and all the way through our own lives. That's the original sin. Can God, who we can't see, be trusted, or shall we take matters into our own hands? And for Wesley, coming to terms on that ship with the most extreme fear, the, the fear of death, led him into a world-changing experience of grace and a radical trust in God, which brought thousands and thousands of people to Christ and changed 18th century Britain for good. And in fact, a number of historians say that because of what John Wesley did, that, that Britain, England and Britain didn't suffer a revolution in the way that the French did at the same time. Jesus regularly speaks into our very real human need for security and safety. But his remedy is always the same. Trust in God who you can't see over the circumstances which you can see. So Hebrews 11 says, Faith is being sure of what you hope for and being certain of what you cannot see. And then a few verses later, he makes the, it makes the interesting point that f- without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's quite a sobering thought. Or as a friend of mine paraphrases that, faith is the magic with God. It's faith that makes God smile. And, that, uh, and this is why I think that money, in particular, is such a favorite teaching subject of Jesus. It's his second favorite teaching subject in the Gospels. Because it gets really to the heart of the fear-faith problem. Because money is very visible. It's very countable. It's very measurable. And it's very powerful as well. And it's such good raw material to help us see how we are reducing fear in our lives uh, by what we see and growing in faith in God who is invisible and yet he is even more powerful. The writer Henri Nguyen says this, the pressure in our culture to secure our own future and control our own lives does not find support in the Bible. I'll just say that again. The pressure in our culture to secure our own future and to control our lives as much as possible does not find support in the Bible. He goes on, Jesus really knows our need for security. He really understands it. He is concerned that because security is such a deep human need, we do not misplace our trust in things or people that cannot offer us real security. So in the passage that Sue read, Jesus says this. He says, look, don't pile up things and invest big time in this world, in this earth. And the reason he says that is because he loves you and me and he doesn't want to see you and me get disappointed and hurt when we may lose it. It looks secure, but he's saying actually it isn't. He says, don't invest here, invest there. Invest in the heavens. Invest in what God is doing. Put your money where God is active and then you can be sure that it's a sure thing. God will use your money and your generosity for good and will multiply whatever you um, invest in the kingdom of the heavens. Then he says that the relationship between God and money uh, and, and the money in your life is 
somewhat adversarial and binary as well. He goes on to say, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And it's as blunt as that. You cannot serve, uh, in the original language, both God and mammon, he says, which is um, a kind of spirit of money. Money, wealth, and possessions are good things when we handle them faithfully and fearlessly. But here Jesus, using the word mammon, he's naming a spirit that loves to control us through money. And if there's greed and envy and selfishness and comparison and fear in us, then mammon loves to jump on that and to hold us down. So Jesus is saying, serve God with your money. And then in the light of this, as the passage goes on, he says, look, so don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. Sue did that bit very well, I thought. What you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. These are practical, necessary, and visible things. God knows that. But he says, go after God's kingdom first with all that you have, including your money. And the kingdom is what you generally can't see. You can see the effects of the kingdom in people's lives. But God will take care of all the visible and necessary things that you could spend your time worrying about. So I want to give you, if I may, three steps towards faith, away from fear, using money as a measure. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Okay, there's a few nods. That's good stuff. So step number one is this. It's really important that you define your relationship with money. You define your relationship with money. What's your status with your money? And the scriptures make clear that it's God that owns everything. He's the owner and we are the stewards. We are uh, the managers of what he gives to us. So in Psalm 50, it says, The cattle on a thousand hills are mine, says God. And I'm sure the farmers might have had a word about that, the ones who felt they owned the cattle. But God says, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. And the prophet Haggai wants to remind us that silver is mine and the gold is mine. And, uh, and he is able he, he, to do anything with it that he wants. And he asks us to cooperate with his intentions. So humanly speaking, let's say you earned 25,000 pounds last year. We feel it's ours because we earned it. But the scripture's testimony is that all good gifts come from our Father in heaven. So even the next breath that you take, which you've probably just taken, is a gift from God. And so our money is a gift from God. And we put all that we are and all that we have at God's disposal. So a friend of mine, I remember, he, he, I remember he wanted to settle this again and again. And maybe it was because it was a hard thing in his life to really consider God the owner of his money and his possessions. So on a regular basis, he would go around his house on his own and he would lay hands on his favorite stuff. So, you know, uh, you know the, these chairs and tables, his TV, his books, uh, his computer, all this kind of thing. And every time he laid hands on something, he'd say, Lord, this is yours. This belongs to you. And then he'd get out his, um, he'd get out his wallet and he'd get out his um, uh, bank statements and that kind of thing. He'd just put his hands on them and say, Lord, this is all yours. This is all yours, not mine. And, uh, and he would release himself in that way. And that's not a bad practice if you've never tried that before. Everything is a gift. And so if you haven't settled that in your heart already and you're a Christian, then I, I would suggest to you this is where you need to start. Think about whether you're the owner or the steward. And I think, isn't it better, a better idea, the God, being an, God being the owner of our stuff than certainly me. That's step one. Step two is this. 
Second, have a proper conversation with God about your money if you haven't already done so. And the conversation I suggest should go something like this. First of all, thank him for what you have. Thank him for what you've been entrusted with. And then say, as my friend does, tell him it's all his. And then ask him, what would you like me to do with your money? What would you like me to do with your money? How much to give away? How much to save? How much to live on? Um, God wants us to be lawful and to pay bills and taxes, so factor that in as well. But engage in an in-depth conversation with God. And also, it's good to have that conversation. uh, If if you're married, have that conversation with God with your spouse. Have that conversation with some of your older children. That can be a very joyful occasion, having that conversation. Very interesting uh, conversation sometimes. And it's really good because what it does is it gets the subject of money out in the open, out of your, just out of your heart and mind, in a conversation with God, with others. And when you, particularly when you talk with others like that, it stabs fear in the heart. It really does because you start to actually have that conversation. But it needs courage, those conversations. Money is a bigger taboo than religion and sex. So um, I encourage you to have that one. So that's the second step. First step is to find your relationship with money. Are you, are you the owner or not? Second, have a proper conversation with God and your nearest and dearest about money. And third, make a plan to give. Make a plan to give. It's my anecdotal experience that most people don't give money. They, they want to, they think they, they're going to do it, and they just don't get around to it. It's certainly true in my life as well earlier on. Make a plan to give. And the plan, should, I would suggest to you, should go something like this. Give first, give proportionately, and give regularly. So give first means uh, when you get some income, the first thing you do is give a bit of it away to God in whatever way you do that. Um, and in that way, you're honoring God first of all, and there's lots of scripture about that. Give proportionally when you, when you read about people giving money away in scripture. Uh, generally, they don't think about the amounts. That Generally, they think about the proportions. And Jesus often spoke about that and talked about proportions. And, the, and uh, the Jews in the Old Testament had very specific instructions around that. And what it means is that anyone, whether you have uh, just a little or a lot, you can play the proportionate game. Because it's not talking about amounts, it's just talking about percentages. And thirdly, give regularly. Because when you give regularly, what you're doing is you're establishing a habit. And every habit you make... Uh, then becomes second nature to you. So when you, when you were making a habit when you were a kid of brushing your teeth, uh, you know, it was a pain. And your parents told you you had to do it twice a day and that kind of thing, and they would watch over you until you got it done. But now I hope, generally, looking around the room as adults, you've generally got a good habit, and your teeth are in much better nick than if you had abandoned that habit. And the thing is the same with money. Giving money away, it becomes a habit, and then it becomes you becomes who you are and you become a generous person through habit so give first give proportionally and give regularly and what i what i what is really crucial is that a plan making a plan like this has to trigger faith in you it just has to it's inevitable that it will trigger faith and stab fear in the heart because you have to step out and trust god that if you're giving money away that the money that you have left that you in discussion with god you have left uh is going to be enough for you and your family or whatever. 
and, and it will trigger faith. It just will do it. Money also submitted to God doesn't have the spirit of mammon on it, but it has the Holy Spirit on it too. And so where you submit your money to God and you start giving money away to different things, God then multiplies the goodness through what you're able to resource. And we heard that from Julia in that story. So my question to you is, what is your next step? Maybe you've taken all those three steps, and that's wonderful. But maybe you need to do step one or step two or three or all three or whatever. But if you pursue those three steps, I'm going to make a cast-iron guarantee that your life with God will change. I say that as your church leader. Your life with God will change if you follow those three steps. My life changed radically as I pursued those three steps. So, just want to say a few words to those of you who are just who are part of ENC. And if you are part of another church, you might want to apply these words to your situation. Or if you're part of no church, it's just good maybe to listen in and see the kinds of things the church does. But I want to just say a few words about giving to Network Church. And I want to say, first and most importantly, a huge thank you to all of you who give financially to Network. Through your generosity, we are investing together in our church community, helping to bring people to Jesus and enabling all ages to grow in faith. I sent an email out on Thursday. If you haven't seen it, do catch it. Because uh, I'm just asking people of ENC over these few days to review your giving to Network Church. And again, if you're married, really encourage you to talk this over with your spouse or your fa- family or whatever. Because although a tough conversation sometimes, because we come from different backgrounds in money, it's really good to get solid together on how you want to deal with your money. If you're part of ENC and you don't yet invest financially in this community and our ongoing story, can I encourage you to start a regular habit now of giving to the church? And apart from our, our own need as a community, the reason is in particular is where your treasure is, says Jesus, there your heart will be also. That is a crucial text around giving. If this community is at all important to you, you want to bring your heart to it. You want to, bring, you want to show up for others. And Jesus says there's a kind of umbilical cord between where you put your money and where your heart ends up. Give money to ENC, then you don't just invest financially in others, but you find that you start to invest yourself in a greater way and in what God is doing. And I've been part of churches for so many years, and I've pretty much always given money to the church that I'm a part of, however small, uh, so that I know that I'm a participant in the community. And what I've found is that I love people more because I give. My heart follows my money. And Jesus made that as a really clear diagnosis of how things work. So if you, if you don't give, I just encourage you to start. If you already give, again, massive thank you. Could you use this week just to review your giving? Just do it as an annual thing, if you like, asking the Lord for clear direction on this. But as I mentioned, at this point, after the turbulent few years that we've had, we do have a need. We've all been through difficult times. The cost of living rise is making things difficult for all of us, for households, for churches, for organizations, and ENC isn't any exception. And during the lockdown, we were able to create what you might call a COVID cushion 
through reduced activity, through a couple of very generous donations, and through furloughing some staff. However, at the same time, you may remember, we planted about 60 people into St. Basil's and into Whipton as well. And this year, uh, this year we've become active again with our gatherings and our networks and children's work becoming fruitful. In fact, in the last couple of weeks, through different people in ENC, I've heard of 10 people giving their lives to Christ, which is really exciting. But kingdom work, the work we do together does cost money. So much of our uh, outgoings go on staff, and staff make different areas of church life live, and they draw people into all kinds of uh, wonderful activities. There's also rentals, because we don't own a building, so we rent all kinds of things, Sundays and networks and food and drink and so on. And it's good to know, uh, if you don't know, that all our income comes pretty much from just us. So the in- our income comes from just us. The only external income we receive is from the extra diocese to pay Bob, our curate. So if you think about larger charities, say like giving to Oxfam or something like that, giving, donations come from all different kinds of parts of uh, the country and the world for Oxfam. But for ENC and for other churches, income essentially comes from within the church community. Over the last four years, our costs have been fairly steady, around 350 to 400,000 pounds a year, but income has fallen. Some of this decrease in income has been due to our planting activity, but not all of it. And post-COVID, you'll have noticed people have moved around, people have moved away and moved in and that kind of thing, and I guess about 20 donors moved away uh, in the earlier part of this year to different parts of the country. So we intended to spend the COVID cushion that we got, and we've pretty much done that. And God has blessed us really amazingly uh, as things are reignited this year. All kinds of good things are happening uh, kingdom-wise. But in order to continue our story, we need to raise at least another £5,000 a month at the moment. And that's a big gap. But we've had big gaps before, and God has been incredibly faithful. So I'm just saying, could I ask each of you to really review your giving at this point if you participate in ENC? How to give? Well, the easiest way to give is uh, is to set up a weekly or monthly standing order. Then you're you're putting a habit together. Ask Ask God what to give and set it up with your bank with the numbers on the card. You can see them in the pew in front of you, the, the red cards. On top of re- regular giving, it's very liberating to give one-off gifts as an expression of gratitude to God for his generosity towards us. And if you'd like to do that, then again, use the numbers. In addition, uh, from this Sunday, we also got one of those card readers at the back. I don't mean um, in a mystic Meg sort of way. I mean uh, that you uh, can pay for things. And... Um, and, uh, and so Steph will have a card reader. We haven't taken a collection since before COVID. So we are starting again, but people don't carry cash anymore, or very little. So we've got a card reader at the back, and if you want to make a donation today, then please uh, ask Steph, and she will help you with that. Just as an example, this is what Joe and I do. Um, and uh, when we talk about money, we make signs to each other. We don't actually say anything. But... As an example, uh, Joe and I give the first 
of our gross income to Network Church. And then on top of that, it's our delight to give away to uh, other organizations and people who we admire who are doing amazing things. And if you haven't experienced it yet, I just want to say, and I have found this, that there is an addictive thrill to giving money away, to generosity, and seeing what God does with your money. I first found that when Joe and I were at college, and we would put little wads of notes in people's pigeonholes um, who we just wanted to bless. And, and then, uh, you know, I remember almost hugging myself with glee at thinking about, um, you know, people finding this stuff. And God taught us so much through that in terms of generosity. But also, at one point, he told me to give to, give to someone I really disliked. Uh, and uh, and when, I get, when I put, I put the wad in his pigeonhole and I left it there, I, I felt a love coming um, uh, into my heart for that person. And um, so, you know, your heart follows your money. It's absolutely true. I mean, Jesus loves saying true things, I know. Uh, but that is, that is true. It's all true. It's all true. Um, the great thing about giving something like 10% as the first thing you do with your income is that you will inevitably activate faith, as I said, which attracts God's presence and God's activity. So, I'm winding up. Being generous is always a counterintuitive and countercultural activity, particularly when times are turbulent as they are now. The turbulent times are supposed to strike fear into our heart. That's what they do. And so moving on a journey from fear to faith is a really important thing for us to be as witnesses uh, in this time. But for Christians, being generous is a posture, not just a reaction. So often we give as a reaction because people come up to us in the street and say, would you like to give money to children who don't have a home or something? And, you know, our hearts are touched. But becoming generous is a posture for Christians. It's a way of becoming more like Christ. And there is a risk to being generous, and I thank God for that risk. But there is a greater risk to not being generous because we never get to live sacrificially. We never liberate our hearts from fear to joy and faith. And we end up being controlled by our need for security and safety. And frankly, where's the fun in that? So I'm going to stop there. I don't think I've ever finished a talk by saying, where's the fun in that? But anyway, I think we need to just spend a little time. Uh, if you would do this with me, do, I'm just going to lead you in a prayer, and you can do with the prayer what you like. Um, but just lead you in a little prayer around what my friend does in his home, but just do it in your own mind. Because it's step one. It's about saying, Lord, this stuff is yours. And if you want to pray that prayer with me, then please do. And I'll just lead you and you just pray it quietly in your heart. So should we stand together? So maybe you've made this step before, maybe you've never done. And, um, but it's just a little contemplative prayer moment. And sometimes it helps us, when we're particularly thinking about this, to put our hands out in front of us. And if you'd like to do that, you're so welcome. Because you're literally saying, here I am. This is who I am. This is what I have. And actually, I'm all yours. And all this stuff is yours. And all my money is yours. My relationship's yours. So just imagine 
just imagine yourself in your house for a few moments. Stand in your house. There's no one else there. In your flat, in your, in your room. And just look around. And just search out the things that mean a lot to you. And just go and lay a hand on them and just in the quietness of your heart say to God, Lord, this belongs to you. This is yours. And Father, I pray as we do this that you would help us experience the liberation that this brings. And I just also, uh, maybe just in your mind's eye, you know, hold a, a bank card or a bank statement or some cash. One of those things. And just have a moment with the Lord and say to him, Lord, this is all yours. This is all yours. It belongs to you. Thank you for it. It belongs to you. So, Father, we release these things to you, back to you. All good things come from you, and of your own do we give you. Oh, Lord, would you set our hearts at liberty and at rest? Would you increase faith in our hearts and in our daily lives over this next week? Would you give us that experience that John Wesley had where he said, I feel that I did trust Christ. I could trust him who I couldn't see over the circumstances and things that I can see. That I put my trust in the greater reality. So Holy Spirit come, make these things real to us, we pray. And as we consider our giving and generosity, Lord, lead us in your ways and lead us into faith. In Jesus' name, amen.